What can be learned from a story woven out of fragmented moments of joy, pain, and blissful awareness? I wrote my first book, Flesh Mapping, in 2013. It was an invitation into co-creating a pedagogy, a way of learning through our shared narratives of plays and politics, a way of mapping the injuries of the material, emotional, spiritual impact of all our many journeys of growth. Some may call it struggle, forced poverty, displacement, hunger, and war. As a child raised in war, I've learned many lessons. And in the art of living, I'm inviting some of my heroes some of the people who walk with me, who have taught me to walk in beautiful ways, to see co-creation, to see community as our immunity to pain, to suffering, to wanting. Welcome. I'm your host, Sylvia Richardson, and this is The Art of Living. We are live with Dr. Robert Jensen. Thank you so much for joining us. Thinking about the world and the crisis that we face are multiple. You know, we face an economic crisis, an ecological crisis, a social and political ramifications of living in the world that is mired with hierarchies. How do we engage in a world in a way that allows us to live more gracefully, recognizing our interconnection with one another? Well, that's a great struggle that people have always had to deal with who have a critique of the way systems, big systems of power work in the, in the world. And I think the, the answer is that we all find a balance between the amount of time energy we commit to challenging illegitimate authority, challenging systems of power like white supremacy and patriarchy and capitalism, and how much we try to construct at the level of our day-to-day -day life uh, a sane and decent community where we think about reducing our consumption and treating both, you know, the human and non-human world more gently. And different people will strike that balance in different ways. But I think as long as we hold both of those goals in mind, the need to challenge power and the need to live decent lives, whatever the balance we accomplish can contribute to the possibility of a better world. In your latest book, Plain Radical, Living, Loving, and Learning to Live the Planet Gracefully, you write about your friend Jim Copeland and about the lessons that you learned from him as to how do we navigate this world of, um, you know, at times what seems to be counter actions and yet the importance of recognizing our situatedness and our interrelatedness to one another. Right. Well, Jim Copeland is, is a name that people won't recognize unless they knew him personally because he wasn't famous. He didn't write books, but he was a lifelong activist uh, and and had to deal with these questions starting in the 1960s through all of the important movements in the last half of the 20th century. And the first thing Jim would say is that the balance he struck in his life was not for everybody. Everybody should figure this out on their own. But he participated in movements. You know, he participated in the civil rights movement in the U.S., the anti-war movements. He dedicated a lot of his life to feminist movements. But he also tried to be part of decent communities on the ground level. He was a lifelong gardener, and he believed the skills um, 
that one cultivates in the garden are important. Uh, he contributed to community groups that were focused on the arts or on more social and cultural questions, believing that you have to build strong connections to human beings on the ground. And so the book is really an attempt to tell both the story of Jim and, and the, the philosophy behind how he made those decisions to help people who are struggling themselves come to their own conclusions about that. You talk about the connection between our mind and our body, recognizing uh, that we are, you know, above all things, living beings, just like, you know, all the other sentient <laughs> beings that share the earth with us. How do we then um, locate the traces of colonization, of imperialism, that demarcate on our bodies the trauma, the terror that we are forced to live with at times? It's crucial. And of course, in the modern, you know, high technology world, we're increasingly disembodied. Obviously, we still have bodies and still walk in the world. But take the obvious example of the proliferation of screens and how much of our understanding of the world comes through a screen, whether it's the computer or a smartphone or the movie screen or the television screen or the video game. You know, uh, for many people, a real connection to the larger living world is largely mediated through screens. In effect, it's kind of disembodied. Now, uh, I don't believe everybody has to go throw away their computers, but recognizing that even for those of us living fairly privileged lives, this question of the body is very important. How do we stay connected to that larger living world? Uh, and my friend Jim, you know, was a big believer that that was crucial to progressive politics. Uh, as I said, he connected to the world in a really profound way through gardening. You know, he'd grown up on a farm and his body uh, and its connection to the dirt was very important to him. Of course, in other situations, these questions of the body are much more distressing when we think about, you know, the violence of patriarchy and how that's visited upon primarily women's bodies. Um, the struggle to achieve dignity in much of the third world because of the incredible imbalance in the distribution of wealth and power. Uh, there, the, the problems of the body are much more tangible and obvious. But, uh, you know, these are questions that, that are meaningful for all of us, no matter where we live, in a sense. I was thinking about um, the way you write your story is quite touching and, and very vulnerable, you know, in the way that you allow the reader to see you at your most naked. And, uh, and I think that there is, there's a certain power in being this open, you know, with, with, with your story, with, you know, in the sharing of our stories. Because as you point out in your book, most people tend to want to tell their story of how they succeeded, how their power yeah. makes them, you know, this um, unique or, you know, standalone kind of personality. I see the invitation as your reader, as one that is a vulnerability, as one that invites me to engage um, in my own story as well. But I wonder, um, how do you see that story connecting to other stories? Thank you for that comment, because that was an important part of the book for me. There, there are really two things I was trying to, to emphasize uh, that I think are especially important for, for people like me who are academics or writers. Uh, you know, a lot of us who teach and write for a living, we tell a story, as you point out, that, that makes us look really good. 
like here are these great ideas we've come to as if somehow we you know have magic gifts that allow us to do this but in in my case the the ideas i've been writing and teaching about for the last 30 years really formed in collaboration with this friend jim coplin and by writing about that i was you know recognizing that none of us build our ideas alone that these are all collaborative in my case there was a particularly important collaboration with this one person but Jim would be the first to to recognize that his own ideas came in similar fashion through this interaction with other people. So, you know, we don't do it alone is one lesson. And the vulnerability uh, is a reminder that, you know, when we achieve some success in life, and I'm a you know professor at a big university, so I'm successful in some sense, it's easy to avoid talking about the ways we are broken and vulnerable and, and weak um, and afraid. And I think for people in those positions of authority to do that is especially important. Um, and that was a big part of how I came to understand the world was by instead of trying to ignore my own pain and my own vulnerabilities through this work with Jim Coplin, I was able to open up and see those as a source of not only suffering personally, but a source of insight that, you know, we don't learn about the world only through our brains and this sort of disembodied thinking. We learn about the world through our engagement with it. And inevitably, if we're human, that means not only triumph and success, it means suffering and pain. And so all of this is part of, you know, every human experience. And I was just trying to write honestly about it, um, recognizing that I have this incredible privilege at this point in my life. I'm older, I'm established, I have the ability to write books. Uh, and I wanted to write as honestly as I could. Uh, I don't need to, to write a book in which I'm the hero. Uh, I think too often all of us tell stories when we're trying to make ourselves out to be the hero. And, you know, there are real heroes in the world, I suppose, but I don't feel like one of them. I love that you not only speak about the... Um the courage to live and be open and vulnerable in order to be touched by the world and to touch the world at the same time. But you also invite us to embrace, you know, the pain, the, the suffering as one of our portals, perhaps, to our own greatness. Because uh, you describe how your friend Jim re refused to allow people to just skip you know the the sadness or when something became so hard you know too hard to bear he would not let you just skip out of it but rather engage you and and invite you to sit with it and to discover yeah. what was in it uh, what were some of the gifts that you discover in those encounters well it, I think it's when we you know not only allow ourselves to feel sad. My friend Copland would have said that sadness isn't really enough of a, a descriptor. He, he often talked about grief, especially when talking about the state of nature, the larger living world of which we're a part in which we are slowly and increasingly rapidly destroying. And Jim used to make sure that people were willing in his world to sit with that grief, to engage it, because out of that grief, out of that recognition of just how much damage we've done to the world and to each other, we do come to, to new insights about how we might change, you know, a deeper moral reckoning. Um, and I don't think you get to that place without the grief. 
Now, we live in a culture in which there's a lot of people trying to sell us perpetual happiness, uh, you know, whether it's happiness through drugs or happiness through entertainment or whatever it might be. Uh, you know, this is a culture that doesn't want us to feel grief uh, for the simple reason that when people are grieving, they don't tend to spend a lot of money. And so in a mass consumption culture, you know, with all this energy and technology around us, there are a lot of easy ways to dodge the grief. And my friend Copland simply wouldn't allow that in his own life. And to be his friend was to recognize you would have to reckon with that grief to stay in relationship to him. And that was probably the greatest gift he gave me and many other people as well. Um, I had a very close and special relationship with Jim, but Jim had uh, networks of people that over the 79 years of his life, he had he had affected this way. And I think if we were all in a room and said, you know, what was special about Jim Copland, there'd be a lot of things. But what would what would bind us would be the the honesty with which Jim was able to look um reality straight on and feel what comes from that, uh, that sadness, that grief, uh, and also balanced, of course, with, with joy. Um, human life is not just grief, it's also joy. And it's, it's kind of a common theme in poetry and, and the arts, that if you deny your capacity to grieve, you will also implicitly be restricting your ability to feel joy. And Jim Copland really took that to heart and really understood what that meant, I think. I love your poem. In the, uh, in the book, you quote uh, Wendell Berry and you say, It is hard to have hope. It is harder as you grow old. For hope must not depend on feeling good. And there is the dream of love, loneliness and absolute midnight. You also have withdrawn belief in the present reality of the future, which surely would surprise us. And hope is harder when it cannot come by prediction, any more than by wishing. But stop dithering, <laughs> I love this, the young as the old to hope. What will you tell them? Tell them at least what you said to yourself. Yeah, you can never go wrong quoting Wendell Berry, in a sense. Um, his poetry is very powerful in that way. And what was so important to me about that passage was that often people who recognize, for instance, we face these multiple ecological crises, uh, who have some sense themselves of the depth of the problems, they'll say, well, people can't handle that, as if somehow you can know something and it's appropriate not to speak honestly of it to others. And so that, you know, that idea, say at least what you say to yourself uh, is very important to, to not let the fear of how other people will react uh, keep you from, from talking honestly about what you know. And again, Jim Copland was a real model for that. He, he didn't go around imposing his views on everybody, but when people did engage him in conversation, he always spoke honestly. He he told others what he told himself and wasn't afraid to do that. We live in a world that um, is constantly presenting us with um, recipes, you know, recipes for the, you know, the way to grow the economy, the way to become an academic, the way to do research. There's, there's all kinds of templates that were being offered. Um, and I guess in, in so many ways I have been consume with this idea that 
we need a, a vision of a world that is interconnected, that is uh, intergenerative, you know, that is constantly uh, aware of our own presence with each other and the way we presence, you know, those with us. So how do, how do you see us uh, building um, a movement that is systematically intentional and in a, I guess in the path of justice, in the path of ecological interconnectedness and gracefully walking upon the earth in a way that allows many generations long after we've gone to be able to thrive and continue to exist and live in this planet? Well, I think you're absolutely right that focus on interdependence is, is incredibly crucial. You know, we live in a culture again in the contemporary United States especially, but to some degree the developed world more generally, that obsesses about independence. In the U.S., you know, we're constantly talking about liberty and freedom, yet everyone understands at some level that there's no meaningful human life if you are truly disconnected from other people, that we are interdependent by nature. That's the kind of animals we are. Uh, and then the next step, of course, is to realize that interdependence is also with the non-human world, and that the modern culture, especially the, the mass consumption culture of the first world, disconnects us from other people and disconnects us from the larger world. So I guess the answer to the question, how do we do that, is first of all to recognize how the dominant culture tries to keep us from that recognition. And from there, people will have different solutions. For instance, just take take a look at the rise of urban gardening in the United States and beyond. Uh, a huge explosion in the number of people who want to not only garden, but garden with other people, community gardens. Okay, well, that's a recognition that we have a connection to the earth, whether we, you know, we're raised that way or not, because our food comes from the earth, most obviously, and that producing food with our own hands is incredibly rewarding, especially when it's done communally. Uh, now, you know, for most of human history, that's the way people did things, communally in a sustainable fashion with the larger living world. We didn't have to be taught how to do it. We didn't have to have programs in it because for most of human history, that was just how we lived. Um, but recent human history, especially the last 10,000 years, especially the last 200 years, have really kept us from you know, what is our nature in a sense. And so I think a lot of these things you see are are people's attempts to get back to what feels right. And what feels right is to be in a, a loving connection to other people in a way that doesn't demand would destroy the earth. Uh, and And people will find different ways to do that, whether it's, you know, making sure you get time to get out of the city and spend some time, you know, walking on a trail on the on the edge of town. Maybe it's an hour a week of getting closer to, um, you know, the world without a screen in between you and that world is part of this process. Um, and I think that's in a sense where the action is politically trying to foster ways to bring people together like that and especially together in ways that don't demand we destroy the earth. I love that you point out that in your book that the sacred is everywhere, you know, and I, I think that I feel that when we connect with the earth, with everyone and everything, with a sense of sacredness, of, you know, honoring one another, 
um, there is but one place, you know, to be, and is one of co-creation, is one of, uh, you know, reciprocity, is one where we are, you know, respectfully engaging with one another. Uh, but clearly, in a society that demarcates all our systems of, you know, of I don't know, call it substance um, as hierarchical structures where power and privilege cannot be ignored. How do we suspend those, you know, uh, learned ideologies and ways of being to adopt a, a more sacred path of interconnection? Maybe that's the big question. But let me let me go back. Something you said about the sacred um, got me thinking. Uh, you know, the sacred I- is a concept that's crucial in almost every culture, it can lead us to designate some spaces as particularly important. For instance, a temple, let's say, or in a church can be seen as sacred space. And by that, we can mean that that's where we go to recharge. That's where we go to reflect, that we recognize a heightened sense of the sacred in that place. But at the same time, it also has to be true that we see the whole world as sacred. Uh, why would one place be more important than another? That when we lose track of the fact that all of the world should be sacred in that bigger sense, then we're in trouble. Because when we start to designate some places as important and sacred and other places as not important, then inevitably we do greater damage to those places we've deemed not sacred. You know, there's another line in the book I quote from Wendell Berry that really drives that home for me as part of a a larger poem. He says, there are no unsacred places. There are only sacred places and desecrated places. And I think by that, Wendell Berry means we have to understand the whole world is part of this living earth. And it's all sacred in some sense. And it's only places that we humans have chosen to desecrate, to treat with less respect, that become, in a sense, waste, uh, become unimportant. So if we think about it that way, then the toughest, you know, neighborhood in an urban setting that's all concrete and asphalt and and broken bottles is every bit as much as sacred as a pristine mountaintop. It's all sacred because it's all part of the ecosphere. It's all part of this incredibly creative life force and and that's a move that's very important away from thinking about life simply as a property of organisms. Uh, you're alive, Sylvia. I'm alive. The plant is alive. In some sense, that's obviously true. But in another sense, a bigger sense, we can think of the whole earth as being alive, that life is a property of the ecosphere. And that leads us to a different attitude, I think, and a different way of treating the earth. Uh, we're not as quick to to describe some places as important and other places as garbage. Now, you keep going to the practical. How do you actually, you know, achieve that in the world? Uh, And again, some of it's about how we think differently, how we talk and come up with new ideas. But I think you're right that it's also about how we build that into our daily lives. Again, let me go back to my friend Jim and this renewed interest in in gardening and in so many urban areas. when you garden, uh, even if it's just planting a couple of tomato plants, right, it it puts your hands into the soil. It reconnects you in a very foundational way to this larger living world. And, and I think that's a good example of that. Now, 
you know, everybody gardening isn't going to change the world because these structures of power are still there. But when we can reconnect to both the earth and to each other through these communal and collaborative practices, I think it builds our our resilience to tackle these systems of power, which we should recognize aren't going away anytime soon. You know, the fact that you and I can agree capitalism is destructive, capitalism is incompatible with a sustainable human presence on the planet doesn't mean capitalism is going away tomorrow. So we need to build the resilience to keep fighting, even though perhaps in our own lifetime, we'll never achieve that victory. And the only way I know to do that is to recharge with other people and to recharge with with the earth. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for being with us. I love your book, Plain Radical. It's just a, a very touching homage of what is clearly a very dear friend of yours. And, um, and I think with loss, we often um, get so mired in the grief that we lose the gift that life is, is a cycle. It's part of a cycle, you know, and, uh, and we're all in that cycle of creating life and generating life. So in parting, what would you encourage our listeners? How would you encourage them to embrace this invitation? Because we are living in very difficult times, but within this hardship, there is an invitation and, you know, that each and every one of us can take up. My friend, Jim Copland, uh, who would be very embarrassed by all this conversation about him because he was a very quiet and humble person. Um, I, I think what he would say is, first of all, start where you live. Look around. Who's, who are your neighbors? Uh, what do they need? What can you do with them? Um, you know, in the end, I think if we can't construct decent communities, if we can't be decent to each other, we don't have a lot of hope politically. Uh, and so the answer to that question is going to differ depending on who you are and where you live. Uh, for Jim, in addition to gardening, it was volunteering at a community arts project. It was, you know, going to the neighborhood cafe and, and uh, you know, making sure there were fresh flowers from his garden in the, in the vases because that beauty was important to him. It was about connecting to the people who had coffee in the morning at that cafe. It was all those little things that help create communities that enrich our lives instead of stress us out. And everybody will find different ways to do that. And the message Jim would leave us with is, don't use my life as a model. Don't try to replicate what I've done. Look around you and, and ask, what do you want to do yourself? And, and there you'll find the inspiration. Beautiful. Thank you so much for being with us. Um, how can our audience reach you? And, I mean, find your books. How can they connect with your work? If you put my name uh, into a search engine, Robert Jensen, uh, the first page that comes up will be my page, and there's an archive of material people can read for free and a list of books, a couple of which are also online for free, uh, as well as an email address and phone number if anybody wants to get in touch. Thank you again for being with us today. Always great to be with you, Sylvia. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Art of Living. I'm an educational consultant and artist, authored. For more information about upcoming events, workshops, retreats, please reach out to sylvierichardson.com. Until next time, 
Remember to be playful, to celebrate joy, and to allow love in all your co-creations. You'll never have to wonder where the groove went. The groove is you.